Welcome to ChristianBook.com. My name is Amy Courage, and today we are speaking with author Frank Viola. He is the author and co-author of several books, including Jesus Manifesto with Leonard Sweet, uh, From Eternity to Here, Pagan Christianity, which he wrote with George Barna, and Revise This Again. Um, today we'll be looking at his newest book, Jesus, A Theography. And Frank, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. I'm glad to be on again. I appreciate it. Great. And um, before we talk about the book, I'm just a little curious to hear about your writing process. Um, you've written a few books with Leonard Sweet, and um, I'm just wondering how your process differs when you write with a co-author or, and then opposed to when you write on your own. What's, what's that like? That's a great question. I have co-authored three books so far. Two of them have been with Leonard. Uh, the other one was with George Barna. And you really uh, find out what it's like to write a book with someone else when you actually get down and do it. And what I have discovered is that there needs to be uh, a common understanding of how two people are going to begin the process right out of the gate. And then there needs to be an understanding of uh, the writing pace uh, that each author has. And what I've discovered is that, for the most part, there are two kinds of writing paces. I am what I would consider to be a, a chipper or a plotter, which means I plod along. I might chip away at a project over a long period of time, write a little bit each day. And then over, uh, over the course of many months, you have a book finished. Leonard Sweet, on the other hand, is what I would call a binger. <laughs> or a crammer, right. he waits until the very last minute, you know, right before that deadline oh, approaches, wow. and then he just binges. <laughs> he will cram and cram and cram. And um, so with this book, it was particularly a challenge because this is a very dense book. It's over 400 pages. We've got over 1,800 endnotes, lots of research. We had over a year to write it, but <laughs> because he's a binger and I'm a plotter, and we had different chapters apportioned to each of us, we ended up writing 90% of the book in six weeks. Oh, wow. And we had to turn uh, the manuscript in on January 15th, so we worked all over Christmas. Uh, we worked through Christmas. We worked through New Year's. We were burning the midnight oil. Basically, to anyone who co-authors a book, find out what the writing pace is of your co-author, and then if you're a plotter and they're a binger, uh, the binger is always going to win out. <laughs> so you're going to end up being like him. Right, right. So anyway, that's that's what ended up happening with us. But we were happy to have finished it, and we're relieved, I guess, in a way. And so far, we've really been encouraged by the response we've gotten, uh, even though it's an early response. We're very happy with it. Great. And now, why did you decide to write this book, Jesus of Theography? Well, I guess two reasons. One, we had written Jesus Manifesto, which came out in 2010, and many of the readers of that book asked both of us to do another project together. They were wanting more. The book was well-received. It had lots of endorsements, uh, which was really humbling and surprising to both of us, from Christian leaders all over the map, you know, denominationally and, and traditionally and, and, and various movements, etc. It was a book that spread across denominational lines, but many of the readers wanted us to go deeper. And so one of the points we make in Jesus' manifesto is that Christ is the subject of all Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. Uh, it all points to him. So we decided to take that theme 
and this gets into the second reason why we wrote the book, we feel that there has not been much written to date that combines New Testament scholarship on Jesus with a theological look at Jesus. In fact, we don't know of any book that's in print right now that dedicates the life of Jesus, looking at it through both the lens of New Testament studies and through the lens of theology, or in this case, Christology. And so we wanted to create a book that kind of brought those two approaches together, Mm -hmm. and we wanted to tell the story of Jesus from Genesis all the way to the maps, all the way to the end of the Bible. Right. So that's what we sought to do in this book. Right. That led right into my next question, which is how is this book different from other books about Jesus? One of the ways it's different is that we bring both the the New Testament study approach, which basically is looking at Jesus through the lens of the Gospels and all of the research we have about the first century. So that would be that lens. And then the other lens is to look at Jesus through what the church, capital C, has said about Christ from the first century all the way to the present, as well as what the entire scope of Scripture says about him, beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation. So bringing those two approaches together and converging them is one way in which the book is unique. But another way is that most biographies about Jesus, most books that treat the life of Christ, begin with his birth in Bethlehem. And in this book, we begin where John begins, his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he created all things. So we begin before God said, let, in Genesis 1. We begin before creation. And uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the book, for me at least, is that there is an awful lot said in the Scripture about what God was doing in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we have a lot of material about Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state as the eternal son before the world began. And we explore all of those scriptures. We put them all together and we tell the narrative of what Christ was doing before time. And uh, it is a powerful, powerful revelation when we begin to look at that. And has your understanding of Jesus changed during the writing of this book at all? Um... The book is actually the fruit of study of Jesus and interacting with Jesus and looking at what uh, the body of Christ has said about Jesus throughout the ages. And so the book is kind of the fruit of that. And so that the actual research, the actual study, the actual lifetime of looking at Christ and learning of him and learning about him certainly has changed both of our view. You know, I was brought up in a denomination and then moved to many different denominations and movements, all basically told the same story about Jesus, you know, that he was the Savior of our sins, which he is, and that he is the Lord of the world, which he is. But to look at Christ the way, say, Paul unveils him in Colossians, this is someone who not only lived before creation, not only created all things, but all things were created in him. (laughs) Paul says this in Colossians. So all of creation is in Christ. Now that is a mind-boggling thought, yet it shows us just how great Christ is. 
And not only that, but what we do in the book is we show that the entire Old Testament story is about Jesus. It prefigures him. It foreshadows him. So seeing that, you know, Jesus is the new Moses, seeing that Jesus is the new Isaac, seeing that Jesus is the new David, Mm -hmm. seeing that Jesus is the new Jacob, and on and on, the new Solomon, and on and on. Also seeing that Jesus is the embodiment of the land of Canaan, that he is the embodiment of all of the festivals, that he is the embodiment of all of the sacrifices, that he's the embodiment of all of the laws in the Old Testament, down to the details. Boy, that really sheds light on the greatness of Christ and how epic he really is. So definitely, you know, in the research of this book, which, again, you know, we didn't decide to write this, you know, on the fly and do our research in a short period of time. This is the product of a lifetime of looking at Jesus and studying him. And it's a product, actually, of two lifetimes (laughs) because there's two authors. So, and we put those insights together. Right. And, um, you know, looking at the book, you know, the first few chapters you're talking about Jesus as he's found in the Old or First Testament, as you call it. Um, and I would say that probably most Christians are familiar with the prophetic passages about the Messiah coming, you know, that are found in the Psalms or Isaiah. Um, what were some more unusual or, you know, unfamiliar passages um, where you found the stamp of Christ's life? I think you mentioned a couple of those previously, but... Yeah, well, that's a great question because, yes, I was also taught early on that Isaiah predicted his coming and so did the psalmist. There's a few obscure references here and there to the coming of Jesus. And then we think that the Old Testament is about all this other stuff. We just have these little prophecies peppered in here and there, you know. Mm -hmm. And, oh, isn't that neat that Jesus was predicted beforehand. Well, Yes, it's neat, but the the thing that's really awesome is that all of Scripture in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, etc., down through the prophets, down through the Psalms, Solomon, Proverbs, uh, etc., all point to Christ. You know, just a couple examples would be in the seven days of creation itself. Um, We look at the seven days of creation and we compare the seven days of creation in Genesis 1 to John 1, and how the wording is very similar and what happened on each day is very similar, that there is a striking comparison, that there is a striking echo in John. John begins just like Genesis does, and then it begins to rehearse what happened each day. You know, John will say, in the day after that, and then the next day this happened, and then the next day that happened, and then the next day this happened. And if you look at Genesis 1, that's how it's structured. You know, in the beginning are the opening words. Well, in the beginning are the opening words of John 1. And then I'll say, and the first day, this happened. And the second day, this happened. Well, the first day, there was a light. Well, Christ is the light. He says, I am the light of the world. You know, and there's passages in Peter where he very clearly tells us that the dawning of creation, where light entered into the darkness was an echo of Christ who is the new light coming up out of darkness. That's just one example, but all seven days point to Jesus, even the Sabbath. He is the embodiment of the Sabbath. Hebrews tells us this. Uh, Then you have uh, the story of Israel, and beginning from Israel leaving Egypt, Hosea talks about this. Out of Egypt have I called my son Israel. Well, Matthew, when he tells the story of Jesus, he applies that text to Jesus. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Mm -hmm. Mary and Joseph brought Jesus out of Egypt. 
And then Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, these things are not coincidences. Why the number 40? Well, Jesus is replaying the story of Israel. And then even in the temptations, there are three temptations that Satan leveled at the feet of Jesus. And in all three temptations, Jesus quotes. He says, it is written. Well, where is he quoting from? Interestingly enough, he's quoting Moses when Moses was in the wilderness with Israel for 40 years and Israel was being tempted and Moses was speaking to them in the face of their temptations. And Jesus is quoting those exact words. So, in effect, Jesus is now the new Moses. It's just incredible. And then Jesus appoints 12 followers, 12 disciples, to carry on his ministry. Well, why 12? Because Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. So Christ, again, is the new Israel. And there's another section where we go into how Jesus is the new Jacob. When he meets the woman at the well in John 4, uh, he meets her at a well. It is Jacob's well. It is noontime. And the conversation that he has with her is just amazing. And Jesus also is the seventh man in her life. You know, she's had five husbands. She's living with a man. He is now the seventh man that appears in her life. Mm. Well, if you go back to Genesis, Jacob is at a well. A woman appears at noon, and it ends up being his wife. He marries her. Her Mm. name is Rachel. And so there's all these parallels again and again and again, all throughout the Old Testament. And we often miss it because we see the Old Testament as an assortment of, you know, laws and stories and symbols and sacrifices and, you know, commandments and testimonies and so on and so forth. But all of it, Jesus said in John 5, all of it points to me, Christ said, from Genesis to Malachi. And so we tell that story in this book. Right. That's really interesting. Um, I wanted to move ahead a little bit in the book. Um, In chapter 14, which is titled The Atonement and the Harrowing of Hell, um, you include a diagram of Bible references, um, which the first side lists the initial foreshadowing of an event related to the Messiah, and then it lists the fulfillment from the New Testament in the life of Jesus. Um, And why did you feel it necessary to outline these passages um, that specifically relate to the Passion, the Crucifixion, and the Resurrection? Well, you know, in that section there, we're beginning to sneak up on the atonement and the death and resurrection of Christ. So that's later in the book where we get to that. We actually end the book with the second coming. So we really tell the whole story from beginning to end, Mm -hmm. not just from the womb to the tomb, but from before creation all the way to his second advent. But in that section, you know, we want to show that there is so much more about the cross and the resurrection in the Old Testament that was prophesied about, that was foreshadowed, that we wanted to give readers the stunning plethora of references. And not only that, but even within that list, we have all the pictures, we have all the types and the shadows that foretell of his death, foretell of his resurrection. So not just the prophecies, but the stories. Even beginning with Genesis 2, where we have a man, the first man, uh, who falls into a deep sleep, and then out of his side there is formed a woman. And 
that is one of the most powerful tellings of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was put into a deep sleep, the sleep of death. And when he died, his side was pierced, and water and blood came out. Not long after, in his resurrection, there was taken out of him a girl, and she is the new Eve, and she is the bride of Jesus Christ. And we didn't just make that up. Mm-hmm. You can find that in Ephesians 5, where Paul essentially says that Adam was a picture of Christ, and Eve is a picture of the church, and he calls it a mystery. And uh, you can also find it in Romans 5, where Paul says that Adam was a prefiguring of Jesus himself, uh, of the one who is to come. And you can find it in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul calls Jesus the second man. Adam is the first man, and he's also called the last Adam. Christ is the second Adam, the last Adam. So, you know, that's just one example of a story that tells the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, there's so many more all throughout the scriptures. It's just really an amazing thing to see. Right. Now, the overall tone of the book, it's written for lay people, um, but you include very thorough notes (laughs) and an appendix in the back. Um, Why did you decide to include this information with the book? We wanted to to do two things which are very difficult to do in a book. Most books are, are either written at a very popular level, which means they're accessible to the average reader, or they are books that are academic and they're written to the scholarly community. So academic books tend to be heavily footnoted or endnoted. They tend to be very technical in their arguments. They anticipate objections and answer them. And the average reader doesn't care about all that stuff, you know. I mean, (laughs) they just want to read a good story, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, or something that they can get through quickly. So what we tried to do, and I don't know if we've succeeded in this, but I hope we did, we tried to speak to both audiences. So the body of the text, the actual book, page to page, is written in a very accessible manner you know, where a high school student can pick it up and read and understand it. You know, we don't use technical language. Even the scripture references, we put them in the end notes so that, you know, the pages aren't cluttered up with numbers. Um, But for the academic, for the theologian, for the scholar, or for the intelligent reader, the thoughtful reader that wants to see, you know, where did you guys come up with this? I never heard this before. Well, the end notes are there for them. One person commented that you can actually put the endnotes together and create your own separate book because not only do the endnotes reference or cite scripture or historical works that we're giving credit to or documenting, but they also contain lots of extra information where we anticipate objections and answer them, where we shed lots more light on the issues we're conversing about. Mm -hmm. And so someone who is a thoughtful reader, someone who is a curious reader, someone who is an academic will really find the endnotes to be stimulating and helpful. Great. And um, just one more um, question about the text specifically. Um, in the conclusion of the book, which is titled The Jesus Spirit, um, you talk about the word gospel and in, con- in connection with its original context in the Roman world. And um, can you explain what that was and how this historical meaning adds to our understanding of the gospel today? Yeah, great question. You know, if you were living in the first century in the Roman Empire and the emperor had died and someone 
succeeded him and took the throne, he would send out emissaries all over the empire to announce the new emperor. And those emissaries were heralds, and they would go out and they would bring glad tidings. That's the actual word they used, mm -hmm. uh, glad tidings or good news. Mm -hmm. And they would be evangelists going around saying that, you know, Nero has acceded the throne. Now you need to bow the knee to him and give your allegiance to him. And what's interesting, too, is that the emperor of Rome in that day was regarded as someone who would live forever was regarded as someone who was divine and was even called son of God, believe mm -hmm. it or not, and was also known as the Savior and Lord. <laughs> and so when the apostles of Jesus began to go throughout all the world and preach the good news, as Jesus commanded, they were going around saying, we have a new emperor Right. There is a new Savior. There is a new Lord of the world who will bring peace, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he's a Jew. And uh, that caused all sorts of chaos and persecution, and riots would break out everywhere, and Paul was beaten and stoned and put in prison because he was proclaiming another king. So that really shed a lot of light on what really was going on and how this word gospel is just a high-octane statement. It's a political statement, you know. It's a subversive statement to say that Jesus is the new Lord of the world. So we get into that in the book. Right. Great. It's a really fascinating um, detail. Um, and, and kind of wrapping up, what do, you, what do you hope that readers will take away from reading um, Jesus of Theography? What's sort of the main, the main thing? Well, I think, number one, that they would get a greater insight into a greater understanding of a greater appreciation for a greater sense of awe and worship and love for this person we know as Jesus because the book just unravels him all throughout the scripture you know in in detail and uh, the more we get to know about the Lord the more amazing he is in our eyes so that's the first thing. You know, readers will come away and say, my goodness, I had no idea how great Christ was and how rich he is and how awesome he is. Number two, we hope that it will give readers a brand new lens by which to view the Bible, that the Bible is not 100,000 different narratives, events, laws, precepts, testimonies, stories, etc., but it has one message, one narrative, one story it's trying to tell from beginning to end, and that story is about a person. And so we want readers to be able to see the Bible totally differently, to see it as Jesus had said it was, to see it in terms of Christ, his words to the disciples. You know, when he rose again from the dead, he met with his disciples, and the scripture says he opened their understanding and he revealed himself through Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. Mm -hmm. And so that's all the Old Testament, basically. And their hearts burned within them. And so our hearts burned within us as we wrote it, and we want the hearts of every reader to burn as well while reading it. Great. Well, there are some really 
really fascinating details in there, and just um, I think that you know readers are going to be they're going to be um, enthralled. You know, I think it's you guys have really created a a work <laughs> that obviously very much points to to Jesus Christ. So, um, but thank you, uh, Frank, for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thanks so much for your kind words about the book. I really hope that's uh, how other readers will feel about it. And thanks so much for having me on again. I really enjoyed it. Great. And thanks for joining us. And we hope that you'll check out Jesus, a Theography by Frank Viola and Leonard Sweet. Thank you.